Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another awesome episode of the Biff Bites Podcast. Jerry, me here, and joined as always by my faithful co-host, Mister Adam Shear. How you doing, Adam? Oh, right, Jerry. I'm doing great. Tax season end is upon us. Yes, and I've had baskets of Easter candy that I've been uh, working working through. I'm I'm just trying to contribute to the family mission of of getting that gone. <laughs> So, <laughs> yeah, uh, stress eating chocolate and filling out uh, IRS paperwork is a uh, time honored tradition in my household. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I've been enjoying the jelly beans. There was there was a mega Easter egg hunt at uh, after the, the church service on Easter Sunday for my kids. And they went they went bananas. So uh, <laughs> we, we, we were at like three X the, the amount of candy we thought we would have in the house. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like so much for doing a you know a spring diet. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, getting the nice warm weather and just feeling miserable because you know just crushed a couple of uh, egg contents. But other than that, all all is going good. It's it's springtime here in the Northeast, which is good to see. And uh, and had some observations from from tax season that I thought would be interesting for us to discuss today. Yeah, definitely. You had, uh, you had some good insight about, uh, you know, working with some clients and interesting tax situations, things to be aware of, and just felt it would be a good uh, kind of topic to sit down and, uh, you know, uh, just talk about a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, we'll throw in the disclaimer that this is not specific tax advice. These are just observations and uh, things that you can keep in mind to be a little more uh, open and aware as you go through your planning engagements, and also to be aware of on the CFP exam side, because these are some of the topics we'll discuss today absolutely have found their way into the exam in the past and are important to, to just be well-rounded and, and helpful financial planners. Awesome. Awesome. So yeah, let's let's dive right into it. So uh, you wanted to chat a little bit about working with uh, either divorced clients or recently divorced or, you know, soon to be divorced and kind of some of the pitfalls that those clients can represent. Yeah, sure. Uh, pitfalls and and possibly opportunities, too. Right. Sure, so sure. Um, for for reference at home, if you're following along. Uh, either either during the podcast or maybe after, drop into IRS Publication 504. It's for divorced and separated individuals. And uh, a lot to be covered there because when married couples are separated or have recently divorced, there are often a set of terms that are spelled out in the divorce, divorce decree or the separation agreement um, that are really going to spell out how things are going to look for that couple. And there's plenty to process for the couple alone, right? So uh, just think of all the property, if you were filing jointly, that could be jointly owned. Uh, it could be just actual property, right? It could be retirement accounts. Uh, it, could, it could be your home, right? So you have you have that set of things to work with, but then in addition to that, uh, when you start mixing kids into into this, the the fold, um, there are tax credits that are available to parents for for kids of a certain age. If you have 
of modified adjusted gross income within certain bands uh, that are going to really help out come tax time. Uh, the child tax credit is one of the big ones that's available out there. So that divorce decree, if you have kids, is going to spell that out too. But Jerry, I guess a good place for us to start is before a separation actually occurs, uh, something that could be out there for people filing, right, is married filing separately. We were talking a little bit about that before we went live today. So uh, something that you've been hearing about exam-wise, right, for, for a while to start with. Yeah, it has been. Uh, I would say it's kind of fairly recent. I don't remember hearing much about it uh, a couple of years ago, but it has been cropping up in the last couple cycles. So something to be aware of. Uh, is just married filing separately and all of the things to be aware of because I, I think a lot of people when they hear married filing separately they just think oh it's just any other you know filing status it's something that separated couples do you know this is what I choose rather than you know head of household or single or married um, but it uh, it's not that easy <laughs> it's you know and well, uh, correct me if I'm wrong it's it's not really something that's usually recommended other than in very specific situations absolutely yeah and and the specific situation so basically what you're ha happening there you have a married couple right and um normally what what happens is you have joint and and severable liability uh which simply means that you and your spouse uh, are both liable, uh, you're, you're both going to be responsible for that return, that it's not just one one spouse's or the other spouse's. But what happens when you go married filing separately, yes, you're technically married, right, by law. Uh, but by electing that filing status, you have separate liability. So one spouse is going to be responsible only for tax due on their individual return. And the other spouse would be responsible for any liability on their individual return. Uh, but it gets really muddy when you start looking into the details because uh, through the goodwill and grace of Congress, uh, we have different parts of the Internal Revenue Code that allow for different credits that are available. Uh, they're gonna be dollar for dollar reductions of tax due and different types of deductions that are available. And what happens is when you go to that filing status, married filing separately, is that those credits that are available will at best be reduced by 50% because you're now filing separately. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, they're going to go off the table completely. Yeah. Uh, so you, you have some limits there. And another piece of this is if one spouse decides to itemize on their return. And remember, when you get to your below the line deductions, so your uh, deductions from AGI, from adjusted gross income, the taxpayer weighs the two options available to them. It's going to give them the biggest below the line deduction. And it comes down to standard deduction, which is built in uh, and is provided to taxpayers in the U.S. as they file their returns, or the itemized deduction, where you have to fill a bucket uh, in order to, to be eligible. And really the rule is, if you don't have enough by way of itemized, that you're gonna go with standard deduction. But here's the thing with married filing separately, if you fill that itemized bucket, one of the taxpayers does, the other taxpayer must itemize. So there's no exception to it. Yeah. Um, so you have, you have these reduction in credits, 
you have uh, all of these these negative things. Another piece where it gets weird is the phase out ranges. Let's say for uh, deductibility of your traditional IRA contributions, it, it shrinks down to to zero to ten thousand, which is basically the IRS's way of saying you're not you know no deduction for you. Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> uh, they do the same thing with Roth contributions. Roth contribution ban, which is generally higher, right? We're in the we're in the two hundred thousand figure when we're looking to a, a married married couple that's looking to contribute to their Roth. That shrinks down to zero to ten thousand. Uh, so they're basically saying you, no no Roth for you. Um, another one is if you're married filing separately and you've lived together at any point during the year. If you are receiving Social Security benefits, 85% of that benefit becomes taxable. So oh. all of this stuff, right? It just, it's no and, good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and because of that, my understanding is basically the only real people who do married filing singly are people who are going through a very messy divorce where, you know, maybe one spouse is refusing to share information with another spouse and withholding information. And so Mary finding singly is the only option because like, listen, I can't do it any other way because they're not going to even tell me what this information is. So I, I can't fill my taxes out. So I have to do it this way. Uh, or like you said, because of the liability reason is I think my spouse is cheating on their taxes and I don't want to go to jail if they get caught. <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, absolutely. That Those are two uh, good, good reasons. Um and they, so there are some different things that are they're they're called uh, injured spouse uh, or innocent spouse situations. If you file jointly and it's discovered that your spouse has uh, that that some of a refund is going toward debts that are due for your spouse, there are ways through the IRS where the innocent spouse can get some credit or relief, right? Uh, so it's innocent spouse relief or injured spouse relief. Uh, but the big reason, and I've actually heard of people that form their RIAs around this strategy to use married filing separately is when you have two high income earners and either one of them or both of them are carrying a lot in the way of student loan debt. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, one of them happens to be working in a uh, public service type of role. So a very common example of this is someone that goes to medical school, right? They get out of medical school, they go for the residency, they're, they're practicing uh, doctor at a hospital in an inner city. And someone like that, if you combine two high income earners together and you have a repayment plan that is income driven, those student loan payments start to take some serious uh, weight on the cash flow in the household. Right, because it's just so, looking at the income. It's not looking at the fact that your spouse has the same debts that you do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> both of you are going to get slammed. Yeah, so what, what will often happen is, and tax software will call this out. They'll take a look at the situation. They'll, they'll say, hey, this is somewhere to look. Um, and they'll run a married filing separately scenario. And what will happen a, a lot of the time is that it'll make more tax sense while that person is fulfilling their, their eight years of payments for a public serve, serve, uh, student loan forgiveness plan that they 
file separately. They potentially take some of the tax credits that were available off the table, but it keeps their loan payments low and they're able to have that loan forgiven. And then they file, file jointly again. Um, I just had some clients that went through just this, actually in that very similar situation, uh, computers programmer making uh, quite a bit of money and then a doctor working in an inner city, the doctor had tons of student loans and they filed separately for eight to 10 years. Um, and just this, this year, they, they were able to move back into filing jointly. And uh, it's nice to return there after you've been <laughs> filing separately because you have, because your student loans, but that is, it's a very uh, smart way to create some tax savings. And like I said, I've talked to a couple of people that use that strategy um, as an introduction to to meet different medical practitioners and say, hey, this is one of the things that I do with people in your profession. Uh, it's going to lighten the load a little bit uh, on the, the student loan repayment side. And we try to get you through that decade's worth of continuous payments mm -hmm. while you're in a public service job uh, to get those loans off the, the table for you. That, that's some great insight. So yeah, there is, there is some strategy involved. It's not all, uh, you know, <laughs> cloak and dagger divorce, uh, tax cheaters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not just like a, a lack, lacking trust and what shady business do we have going on here? Uh, all that type of stuff. But, uh, like we were talking about at the top. So that's, that's separating or separate, uh, yeah. people that are treating their returns separately. Um, one of the things I saw this tax season was someone who was recently divorced and just all of the nuance that needs to be considered as you work with someone there. So uh, one of the most useful things that I found was when I was, I was doing some tax organizer type of work, just trying to get this person's information uh, so that I'd be able to complete the return and, and, you know, so I got their, their W-2s and uh, some, some other forms that they had, 1099 forms for their interest or dividends and all that good stuff. But knowing that this, this woman had divorced, I also asked if it was okay that she share with me some of the, the divorce decree, right? The separation agreement. And the reason for that was, was multi-tiered. The, the first thing I wanted to figure out was uh, it was more tax return related. I just wanted to see if it clearly spelled out who was gonna assume ownership of the house as a result of the divorce. And I also wanted to see how the interest that was paid towards the house was gonna be treated in the year of divorce for tax purposes, right? So it, it just worked out that in the divorce paperwork, it spelled out that my client who I was preparing returns for was going to take the house and was also going to be able to use all of the interest paid, even though they paid it as a couple in their tax return. And how that ultimately helped her out on the tax side is that she had a year's worth of mortgage interest that she paid into. And she was it actually put her over the limit to itemize. And she got a little bit more than the standard deduction um, in the year of divorce. So uh, what it also started to spell out was just how their kids were going to be treated for tax purposes, um, which kind of leads you down another rabbit hole because yeah, fighting over credits, you know, is, yeah, is exactly. a big thing, especially <laughs> when kids are involved. For sure. Yeah. So it spelled that out and said that they're going to alternate year over year 
Uh, they have two young kids. Both of them are going to be uh, the type that are going to be eligible for that child tax credit. So uh, that comes with additional paperwork. My client had to fill out something that uh, was attached to her return that said that I'm giving up uh, the I'm giving up this the the claiming this dependent this year to my my ex, and that had to be filed with her return and then shared with her ex, so her ex could file that as well, um, so that that looked clean on on his end, and. Uh, and in you know just in a, in addition to that, it talked a lot about the different property that that transferred. So there was there was no alimony, ongoing alimony payments, and in lieu of that, there were brokerage accounts that that transferred. And um, and with that, there were just some other things we had to be mindful of, right? So you don't you don't get any step up in basis when this happens. It's 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 just a transfer as a result of the divorce decree. Um, and she, we got ownership of that. And, uh, yeah, so there, there was a lot of, a lot of detail there and, uh, just wanted to share that with, with the planning community that listens here, because I think it could be something that gives you a lot of insight into where that person is, you know, there's, there's going to be a lot of emotion, obviously that that's tied up in, the divorce, being on the other side of the divorce, and by bringing your your awareness and your expertise to reading through that, you can then translate. Okay, this is how this is going to work out, and here are some some things that are going to be good for you. And in, in this client's case, uh, she was able to file as head of household, uh, which is great. Uh, and the reason for that was <clears throat> she was unmarried at the end of the year. She had uh, full custody of the children. They lived with, with her for the whole year. She paid more than half of their expenses. Um, and as a result, uh, she was able to, uh, she also kept the home and able to file head of household. And with head of household, you get a higher standard deduction that's built in uh, than you do if you're filing single. And there's just some differences in the actual marginal tax brackets too. So there's, there was some, some good in that, but it led to some, some good discussions along the way. Uh, and I, I think what clients, especially in those situations want to see is that, all right, there, all of this stuff that seemed confusing possibly is, is that we're going to be working this out. We're going to be doing it thoughtfully and we're going to get this to a place where this year and going forward that the, at least on the tax side, that's going to be handled well. Uh, but this, as you and I talked about, Jerry, it also involved other property that's out there with, you know, who gets the house, who gets the kids. Uh, sometimes there's tiebreaker rules that need to be called into play to see just based on the amount of time that a child is spending or the amount of income that's supporting that child. Uh, the IRS has all that spelled out. So very nuanced area. Um, I feel like it could be a really lengthy conversation, but publication 504 is a really great place to start if you're interested in learning about, about all that, all, all of this in, in greater detail um, to where you can actually get into some of the nitty gritty. 
Yeah. And, you know, like we said, there's a lot of financial advisors out there who tailor make their entire, you know, business to cater to divorced clients. You know, I think it's been going down. It's not as bad as it as it was, you know, a couple of decades ago, but I still think it's, you know, upper 40 percent of Americans have been divorced at least once. Yeah. Uh, so there, that's a lot of clients out there that this is going to be re- really relevant information for. Absolutely. And so. A big piece of this that we haven't talked through is alimony, right? So as a result of these separation agreements, it could be, I mean, it's very often the case where a spouse would have to pay another spouse alimony payments for a period of time. And this is this is familiar territory to us in CFP land, right? Because uh, it's, it's one of those things that you're expected to know about. Um, at a pretty high level, right? You don't need to go into the details, but at least the treatment of it. So we've been tracking this for a while and uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act changed the treatment of alimony. And for those of you sitting for your exam in the coming cycles, you need to know both the pre-Tax Cuts and Jobs Act treatment, uh, in which case the alimony was deductible to the person paying and it was considered income for the person that received it. And then the post-Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, um, 2019 and on, is the flip. So it is no longer deductible to the payor, person paying it, and it is not considered income to the person receiving it. So two very different things. And and the, the cue to apply the rules comes down to when that agreement was finalized. So if you have someone that has been making alimony payments since 2010, then you have to know to apply those old rules. And if you look on the tax forms, you can see this. You can see where that lands and the fact that there's a space for uh, the the year, right? When, when, When was that agreement executed? And is this a deductible alimony payment if you're the payor or is this non-deductible? Uh, same thing on the other side for someone receiving income. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I actually just looked it up and uh, we're America, we're doing pretty good. We're down to 37%, 37% really? of uh, marriage right. and divorce. And that's hey. down from, uh, you know, upper forties in the, in the nineties. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember that it, it was, it was around that 50%. I think, I think it crossed over the, like the majority were in ending in divorce for a little while there, but it, it has been trending down. We're down to 37%, which is right. still a lot. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, there were, uh, there were in 2020, there were 630,000 divorces in the U.S. And that's, that's wild. And, and just think about how many of those people are stepping into, you know, not only the time leading up to that separation agreement, but the time afterward and, and what that could do financially. Right, that that can really have a great impact on on how your financial situation looks. I mean, I'll I'll share that I I come from a family where my parents divorced when I was in my twenties, and um, and it, you know, it it was my my father had to make alimony payments and child support payments to my mom for a while because he was the sole income earner for the longest time, and I had to watch my mom kind of pick up the pieces later on in her career, and uh, I mean, she was. She was up for a while delivering newspapers in the morning and then going to a job at Prudential during the day. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but this stuff is happening every day everywhere and and i think just it depends on what that that household design is 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 there a sole breadwinner um and then what happens afterward and i think these these instances right um divorce birth of a child death um these major life instances i've always said are just the the times where it's so vital for clients. If, if the thought comes to their mind, I should get some help on the financial front. Those are great times to, to seek out the help. And if it's 630,000, I mean, there's a lot of people out there that could be helped by certainly the people that listen to our podcast. Yeah. Well, and also that's 630,000 divorces, which means there's 1.26 million potential clients because you need two people yeah. for a divorce. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're right. You know, that's, yeah. that's a million and a quarter people out there each year who are going through a divorce and are definitely going to need some quality financial help. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, another thing that we, we didn't touch upon, I don't think we have this space too, but uh, quadros. I mean, if you worked in a planning shop before, you've, you've certainly heard of qualified domestic relations orders. Uh, just know that that's covered in publication 504 too um different different situations with community property so if you're in a community property state just knowing that they look at marriage differently uh for the cfp crew out there remember that's those are the states out there you know mostly on the west coast some in the southwest uh alaska and i, I think wisconsin um but that that group in, in louisiana right texas louisiana that group of states has that double step up, right, uh, at death when property transfers between spouses. Well, there's some unique situations uh, and treatment of property for divorced spouses in community property states that are worth checking out as well. But like I said, Jerry, we can go on and on about this stuff. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and and and, and, tr and truly, th this is the stuff that... Um, as I was preparing this person's return that that kind of sparked the idea for this episode, this tax season, I would I would use these sources, right? And that's something that we coach our students on a lot is that it's not just that you're expected to have this stuff top of mind at at all times. A, a lot of learning how to be uh, preparing taxes or how to be writing a financial plan and, and working with different types of people is is knowing how to seek the sources that you need. And I think the IRS publications are a great resource. I, I leaned on them a, a, quite a bit when I was working through this return just to cross check, make sure that, okay, on the head of household front, all of everything's checked. I have documentation to back it. We're in a good place. Uh, there's a due diligence requirements that you have to fill out when you're filing head of household uh, because of that higher standard deduction. The IRS views it as a potential area where people uh, could be fraudulent. Uh, so the tax prep has to go through a checklist, but there's a lot to learn at the point of work when you have some more of these, these uh, complex situations and the IRS pubs on the tax side are a great resource. Excellent. Excellent. Well, yeah, this was uh this was great, Adam. Uh, you know, definitely not a, a fun topic for our clients, no. but <laughs> definitely a good topic for every CFP to be brushed up on and to be prepared to help out with, because, you know, these are the clients that definitely need the help. Yeah, absolutely. Jerry. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for agreeing to, to record this one and, and for your time. And 
anyone else out there that has questions, check out the IRS website on this stuff. Uh, it, not only in addition to the publication, but they'll often have uh, little sections of the, the website that are focused on a specific topic. They'll have FAQs around this stuff. You're likely to find a good starting point at the very least to some of the questions that are going to come up as you work through a situation where there's there's a divorce and there's kids and there's alimony and child support. So uh, best of luck and, and go and help those those clients out there. Yeah. And if you want to learn more about how all this applies to the CFP exam, you know, definitely check out the BIF review. Uh, this is all topics we really hammer home in the classes because we have been seeing it be more and more tested on the exam. So it's definitely an area we're spending some good quality class time on. For sure. Yeah. With that uh, said, we're, we're getting, we're getting ready to go another round here, right? So I know I've been doing, I've been doing welcome calls with all the new students, getting to know them all. We got, we got some right. fresh faces for the, uh, the July cycle and I'm, yeah. I'm excited. I'm, I'm pulling for that hundred percent pass rate again. <laughs> We That's didn't quite goal. get it. Didn't quite get it in March, <laughs> but uh, I'm I'm hoping this is the cycle, hundred percent pass rate. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. March, I think they officially uh, let everyone know with the preliminary pass that they passed this past week, and the percentage pass rate for March of 2023 was 65, percent which I think is what CFP board has that cut score set at. Yeah, so it's getting of the pool, sixty five percent of that pool going through and getting the marks. So yeah, so that that's that doesn't change much. Yeah, national um, pass rate is sixty five percent. Yep. I don't. I haven't seen. I don't think they've released the school pass rates yet. No, they haven't gone there yet. Um, the the top secret confidential school pass rates. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but just know that know that if you're going to come study with us, that you have a a team that's really committed to your success and. We, we try to be along with you for that journey and uh, really good to hear. Good to hear that you're meeting some, some new good people coming into the Biff review, Jerry. Um, I'm excited. Uh, we got, we got some, some smart cookies. I'm confident, you know, this is the cycle. It's going to happen when it happens. Oh yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's go, let's go do it. Awesome. Well, 100%. thank you. Thank you everyone. I uh, hope you all have a great week and study on. Take care, everybody. Thank you.